Well, good morning. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Mark, and it's my privilege to fill this pulpit on most Sundays for the last 13 years, and I'm glad that you're here today. A nasty little secret about church uh, that Paul uh, was too nice to allude to is that not church as in Xenia Church, but church as in the church universal, is that 20% of the people do all the work. And uh, we want to bust that because we, we wear out the 20% of the people, we burn out the 20% of the people. And so if you have um, a passion and a desire to be able to help, and even if that desire is not that strong, you're still needed to be able to help. Thank you for so many of you that have helped for so, so many years. And, uh, but uh, we have to turn that over the, the volunteer help over from time to time. So thanks for considering that. We're in a series of messages that we're calling Walking in Truth. And this is the fifth week of this series. And we'll probably go all the way through November uh, on this. Our anchor verse is from 3 John. Uh, you can call it 3 John 1, 4 or 3 John 4 because there's just one chapter in the book of John. And John says he has no greater joy than to know that his children are walking in truth. Now, John wasn't speaking to his biological children. He was talking about the churches that he had started along the way, but it certainly is applicable as well to your bi- biological children. I know many of you, that's a heartbeat. Your, greater, your greatest joy is not them getting into good school. Their greatest joy is not for them to go- do good athletically. Both of those things are great and fine. Your greatest joy is to know that they are walking in truth. So we're speaking about different areas of truth um, and uh, talking about how the world is not open to the truth and they're so close to the truth that they use this weird stuff called my truth and your truth or our truth instead of just speaking of the truth. And so we've been talking about that and we'll continue to brush that now for the next four or our five weeks. Today I want to tell you the very important truth that the truth has an enemy. And you can call him the devil, you can call him Satan, you can call him whatever you want to. Uh, The truth has an enemy. Now, I don't preach too much about the devil because I think that uh, for for a lot of us Christians, our eyes are too much on the devil. And um, some of us seem to buy into the Flip Wilson school of theology that the devil made us do it. The devil never made you do a single thing in your life. He doesn't have that power. He can lie to you. It's all he can do is lie to you. He does not have control over, you know, you can buy the lie. You can buy the lie. He does not have control over you. And that's a lie that the world has bought. And one of the reasons we buy that lie is to take responsibility off of our own shoulders on that. John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says this, speaking to some uh, people, some Pharisees, and he said, you belong to your father, the devil. And by the way, that means that everyone's not a child of God. you You hear that all the time, and that's a lie that the world says too. You have to be adopted into his family, and you get adopted by faith. But the world wants to believe, well, everybody's a child of God. Jesus says, no, you belong to your father, the devil. And the only way you become a child of God is to be adopted into his family by faith in Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8. 
He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And the verse continues and says, when he lies, which is all he does, so it's just assumed, there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It's his one and only strategy that he has. And he lies in a whole lot of different ways. Satan will distort the truth. Satan will cast doubt on the truth. And there are even a few times that Satan will deny the truth. And that's only a few ways that he will deal with the truth. He will distort it. He will cast doubts upon it and sometimes he will either deny it the denial of the truth doesn't come that often because most of us won't buy into a, an out and out lie of the denial of the truth but a lot of us will buy into a distortion of the truth and the key for us as Christians is we do not know the difference between lies and the truth unless we know the truth we can't make that distinction and so we don't know when he's lying to us unless I know the truth and the Bible says that the truth will set you free now over and over and over again in 13 years of pastoring here and 29 years of ministry overall, I've referred back to Genesis chapter 3 because it's a foundational chapter of all of Scripture. And so much of the rest of the Bible uh, is explained throughout what happened in Genesis chapter 3. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, after God had created this beautiful world and created... Uh, Adam and created Eve and, and great, created this beautiful garden for them to enjoy a serpent who was more crafty. I like that word crafty. Can I tell you that the enemy is very wise? He's crafty. He ain't stupid. He was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... He said to the woman, why did he go to the woman? Why didn't he go to the man? Man was created before the woman. Why didn't he go to the man? I don't know. <laughs> but I think that means something. Larry Crabb was a biblical counselor. He wrote a book, The Silence of Adam. Where was Adam during all this time? Well, we find out a few verses later, he was standing right beside her. Why didn't Adam step up to the plate here? Silence of Adam. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, did God really say? He cast doubt. Did God really say? All of you have heard that. All of you have heard, not in audible words, but in your spirit, you've heard in his little weasley little voice, did God really say? He didn't really mean that, did he? 
did God really mean that? That's a lot of application in our world today. A lot of application in our world today. Because people will, in all different areas, were out and out doubt the word of God. Deny the word of God. He didn't mean that. Now I could spend the whole sermon right there, but I'm, I'm, I'm not. We're going to later on talk about the truth about abortion, the truth about homosexuality, the truth about transgenderism, the truth about so many different things. Did God really say? He cast doubt. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Right there, he distorts the word because that's not what God says. God said you can eat from all of these trees, but you can't eat from the one in the middle. You can't eat from the one in the middle because then you will know the knowledge of good and evil. That's Genesis 2.17. So he distorts the truth there. And so he says, you know what? God is holding that on you. He's not really a good God. He's not going to let you eat from any of these beautiful, luscious trees that are in the garden. That's a distortion of God's word. That's a distortion of God's word. We'll spend a little more time there later today. But did God really say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden? Next slide, please. I'm sorry, go back one. I apologize. And the woman said to the serpent, we may, we may eat from the tree in the garden, the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the one that's in the middle. Next verse, next slide, please. And you must not even touch it, she adds to scripture there. We're really good at Christians as of adding to Scripture. Or each of our little denominations, sometimes we add to Scripture. And it says in the end of this book that uh, if, you, if you take away something or add something to it, that you'll be under the curses that are in this book. If you take something away or if you add something to it. She added something to it there. Don't add anything to God's Word. Don't add anything to God's word. You can share your personal convictions, but don't share them like they're God's word. Everybody's got personal convictions about certain areas. Fine. Don't share them as if there's God's word. Don't hold other people to your convictions that are not scriptural. Then the enemy comes around in verse 4 and says, he yet now denies God's word. He says, you will not certainly die. So he doubts it. He distorts God's word. And right out here, he flat out denies God's word. Because in Genesis 2.17, that's when God came and says, you must not eat from any tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the enemy comes along and denies God's word and says, you, you won't certainly die I'm trying to tell you this morning that he's an enemy of the truth and the 
He, he's the father of lies and he doubts and distorts and denies and you cannot battle him unless you know the truth because you can't distinguish between what is falsehood, he's the father of lies, and what is really true unless you know the truth. Unless you know the truth. I've told you this before. You know how FBI agents and Treasury Department agencies, they, they, their job is usually with Treasury Department, their job is to... Is to uh, Learned a lot about counterfeit money. You know how they learn about counterfeit money? They study the real thing. And so they know the real thing. And when they see counterfeit, because they know the real thing, they know it's counterfeit. They don't spend time learning about all the counterfeit. They know the real thing. They know the way it feels. They know the way it looks. And so when they see something that's not true, they know it. They know it. So the enemy comes along and he doubts, he casts doubt, he, he denies and he distorts. There's lots of distortions. I could spend the next month of Sundays talking about the distortions of truth. And, the, and, and after all, you know this, the best lies are the ones that have a little bit of truth in them. The best lies are the ones that have a little bit of truth in them. But he distorts that truth. One of the distortions of the truth that he uses is a, is a good person theology. And people say, well, I'm a good person. And you know what? Um, it's not about being a good person. Oh, it is about being a good person. But it's not about being a good person. It's, it's not in its core about being a good person. It's about trusting in Jesus who was the good person and died for you. But isn't it about being a good person? Yeah, but it's not the core of what it is. I'm a good person. And how do you even know what a good person is? How do you define that? There's, a, there, there's as many different definitions of a good person as we have people in this room. And every single definition of a good person will basically come down to, I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. There's no definition of what a good person is. But the enemy will come along and say, you know, God wants you to be a good person and, and you're a good person. You're a good person. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a good person. Huh. And that has just enough truth in it to distort. Because God is very much concerned about the lives we live after we become saved. Very much concerned with it. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul writes, For the grace of God has been revealed to all people, and it teaches us. The grace of God has been revealed to all people, and it teaches us how to get to heaven. No, that's not what it says. The grace of God has been revealed to all people, and it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. Well, we, we'll all be good and godly when we get to heaven in this present age. What's the grace of God do? Well, of course it gets you to heaven. The only reason you ever get to heaven is because of the grace of God. But Paul writes, because that was already being confused in Paul times. Paul says, do you know what the grace of God does? It teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. 
and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people eager to do what is good. That's what the grace of God does for you. But so many people just wave their ticket to heaven and say, you know, I'm going to heaven. I sin every day in word, thought, and deed, but I'm going to heaven. I sin every day in word, thought, and deed. But I thought the grace of God was supposed to teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. That's what the grace of God does for you. Heaven is a serendipity. (laughs) You get heaven along with that. We have all kinds of distortion. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Why would God, why do I need, I'm a good person. Jesus, the Bible wants you to be, yeah, the Bible wants you to be a good person, but more than that, he wants you to trust in the only one that was good, who paid the price for your sin so you can become biblically good. Biblically good, not because I grit my teeth and try so hard, What's the scripture say? The grace of God teaches us. Distortion of truth. They're everywhere. Another distortion of truth is what I'll call today prosperity Jesus. You see it everywhere. You see it on TV shows. You, You hear about it everywhere. Jesus wants you to prosper. Well, Jesus does want you to prosper. He absolutely wants you to prosper. But you've got to define what prosper means. What does prosper mean? It sounds to me like I'm prospering when I'm saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. That sounds like a whole lot of prospering to me. But we got people here today in all kinds of churches today that some, if you'll come and sow a $1,000 seed, God's going to take care of all your credit card debt that you shouldn't have got involved with in the first place, but he'll take care of it. Just come sow this $1,000 seed here because God wants you to prosper. Well, my Bible tells me that if I get myself in credit card debt, I'm going to have to pay the consequences for that because what I have sown, I will reap. But just come and sow the seed and God will take care of it because God wants you to prosper. Problem with your family? Kids are not, kids are, kids are going crazy. Come sow a thousand dollar seed here. Trust God that he's going to, bring those kids back home and he's going to get those kids in order. Just sow the seed here. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. John sixteen thirty three. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But behold, Jesus said, I've overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble. And I know I know people that believe that they just don't have enough faith yet or God will take care of all their credit card debt. They have more faith. God will take care of all that. Does God want you to prosper? He absolutely wants you to prosper. But you better define prosperity. You better define prosperity. Distortion of the truth. Just enough truth in it to to suck some people in who don't really know the real truth. 
And there's no way you know the lies unless you know the truth. You can't find the counterfeit unless you know the real thing. One more distortion of the truth is that God loves you really means he affirms you and he approves of you. No matter who you are and what you do, God loves you. He approves of you. He affirms you. Pastor John, do you love your kids? I should have picked somebody else. You never know what's going to come out of the mouth of a youth pastor. You know what I mean? I'll trust that you love your kids all the time. You may not feel it some, all the time. Because you love your kids, do you approve of everything they do? If he approved of everything they do, I'd call children's services on him. And if we as human beings know not to approve of what our children do, how much more the infinite God knows that. And God's love does not just mean affirmation and approval. Does God prove of adultery? Does God prove of lying and cheating and murder? Then why does God approve of homosexuality? Then why does God approve of all the different perversions of sexuality that we have? But you hear people to say, well, God loves me. He does. He loves you with an eternal love that I can't even describe. But he loves you enough, just like I love my Levi and Christopher enough to say, no, do not do that. Do not go there, son. And if I didn't say that, if I wasn't honest to my boys, you'd call children's services on me. Just let them, I just, I just approve of everything they do. I just approve of everything they do. Affirm everything they do. Now God is the, affirms us because we are created in his image. How much more affirmation could I ever get than I'm approved, than I'm affirmed by being created in his own image? And I can walk around with my chest stuck out because he affirms me as someone created in his, his own image. But he loves me enough to say, don't go there, Mark. It'll destroy you. Don't go there, child. That, that's what the Ten Commandments are. Ten Commandments were never some road you walk until you get into heaven. God freed the Egyptians from, a, a, excuse me, he freed the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. They were already free. Then he gave them the Ten Commandments. They were already freed. Then he said, this is how now you should live. Now that I freed you and brought you to myself, this is how you should live. You shall have no other gods but the Lord. No other gods other than the Lord thy God. And so forth and so on. The Ten Commandments were given for people that were already freed and said, now that you are already freed, this is how you should live. There's just a huge 
huge difference between God loves you, which means he approves of me and approves of everything that I do and affirms me, than the biblical God. Do you know how many precious few Bible, Bible verses there are in here about how to go to heaven? There's not very many. I've never counted them. I'll do that one day. Maybe there's 30 that basically tell you how to go to heaven. There's probably 15,000 that say that now you are a Christian, this is how you should live. Now that you are a person of God, this is how you should live. Well, does that mean that he doesn't care about me going to heaven? Of course not. It's just, listen, the Hebrew writer says, it's just the elementary things of God's word. And we have to go on to the meat of the word. And that's why we don't stay in infancy, Paul says. We don't stay a baby Christian that needs spiritual milk. We need to grow up so we can eat meat, the meat of the word. God loves you with an eternal love that I can't even describe. But it's not a love that affirms everything that I do and approves of everything that you do. Distortion of the truth, you see? Distortion of the truth. So he distorts the truth, he denies the truth, he doubts the truth. Can I tell you there's a difference between unbelieving doubt and believing doubt? Anyone that has a brain, that their brain is working, you have some believing doubt. Sometimes you will think, if you are a thinking person and your brain works, sometimes you've had to have this thought, can all this really be true? And if you can't admit that, you're being too spiritual. Be transparent enough to admit that. Jesus came one day and was going to heal the son of this one man in Mark 9, 24. And basically Jesus says, go, you know, go, I've, I've healed your son. And the boy's father says, I believe it. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's a Christian. That's believing doubt. That's an honest Christian. Not one who's trying to make himself out to be a super duper saint and make everybody believe something that's not really true about you. God knows it's not true anyway. You're transparent enough to say, man, I really struggle with that verse. But I'm asking God to help me believe it. That's a Christian. That's a man or woman after God's own heart. Everybody else that doesn't admit that, you're trying to impress all the people around you. Unbelieving doubt is when people just absolutely say, oh, there's no way that can be true. I mean, you, you know the difference there. But if you, were a, if you are a thinking person, if you don't eat my blood, if you don't drink my blood and eat of my flesh, you'll have no part of me. Is there a single person in this room that didn't scratch their head when they read that? Can I tell you? There's some weird things in the Bible. God, give me the grace 
to believe it. And not just believing in God. I've told you this a hundred times. The devils believe in God. Give me the grace as the team saying to take you at your word. The Bible says the devils believe in God, right? And they tremble. James 2, 14 maybe. Somewhere along in there. The difference is believing him. Taking him at his word. That's why we sing that song. We don't pick songs willy-nilly. We take him at his word. And why do we take him at his word? Because it's truth. Now as we round third and head for home here, I want to tell you that the enemy is resistant to truth. Enemy is resistant to truth. I mean, when Jesus went out in the desert and 40 days, he fasted, got to the end of that 40 days, and the devil comes. Interesting, the devil didn't come on the first day. The devil, you know, I just gave you three strategies, deny, distort. The, de- the devil picks his times. He picks his times. And so he decided after 40 days when Jesus was weak and hungry as all get out, he comes to him and offers him bread. And what is Jesus' strategy for fighting the devil? He quotes scripture. I suppose Jesus, who was part man, part God, could have, in his glory, just made the devil fall back. But Jesus did what we can do to model for us. He quoted scripture. And the devil was resistant to truth. It says in the the Luke account of the temptation, at the very end of that, that the devil left Jesus till a more opportune time. Maybe the more opportune time would have been when he wouldn't have quoted scripture. <laughs> Can I tell you he's resistant to the truth? There was an organization that was very strong back in the uh, 90s and early 2000s. It's a men's organization called Promise Keepers. It was started by Bill McCartney. He was a football coach at the University of Colorado at that time. And men's events were happening all over the country in football stadiums. I went to several of them. 40, 50, 60,000 men were gathering to worship and to be taught. And Coach McCartney started that. That, 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 that movement climaxed with a million men going to Washington, D.C. I was there. I was there. And we gathered on right there in D.C. And, and we worshiped and we heard teaching. And the movement f- since then is still around, but it's gone downhill. Because how do you... How do you get better than a million men in Washington, D.C.? What do you do to top that? 
Well, in 1993, I was a brand new Christian and this, Christ, this Promise Keepers movement had just started. And the video that I'm going to show you has ever been imprinted on my brain because I was a brand new Christian and I was a sponge. That's, that's what you do when you know you've been saved by the grace of God. You're a sponge. And you, 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 you've got, you can't drink enough of this stuff. And I remember seeing this clip of, of E.V. Hill, an old black pastor from L.A. He's died now. Preaching to 50,000 people there in Boulder, Colorado, and teaching on this passage that I just alluded to in a temptation passage. Would you listen to this, please? This is a Promise Keeper Spotlight. Find out more about Promise Keepers resources and events for men at promisekeepers.org. This Promise Keepers Spotlight features Evie Hill. This message titled, How to Make the Enemy Run, was recorded at Folsom Field in Boulder, Colorado in 1993. Jesus, Jesus did not show the devil his glory because we don't have no glory. I go my, my, my best right here. Nobody won't be blown away. Jesus did not say, devil be done, because I couldn't have said it. Jesus had to do something that everybody in here can do. And I'm fixing to give it to you right now, because I want you to use it tonight. I want you to use it tomorrow. I want you to use it tomorrow night. I want you to use it for the rest of your life. Jesus said, devil, it is written. It is written. That's what he said. It's written. In other words, Jesus went to the book of Deuteronomy and came out with scripture. And every time the devil opened his mouth, the Jesus threw scripture in his mouth. He came back at him again and he said, devil, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He hit him over and over and over with the scripture. And guess what happened? The devil ran. And guess what you can do beginning tonight? You don't have to take it. You don't have to take his mess. You don't have to take his stuff. Hit him. It is written. When the devil comes up and says, how do you know you've been saved? You are not saved. Yes, I am saved. Hit him. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Hit him, hit him, hit him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hit him. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Hit him. 
written. It's in the book. It's in the Bible. All you have to do is take out your Bible and say, where are you, devil? Come on, devil. Let's get it on. Let's get it on. Now, if you've, uh, yeah, that's fine. Now, if you've been preaching as long as I have, you can learn to read a little body language on preachers. He wasn't done with his sermon, but he knew he had reached the climax and he better shut up. <laughs> and he couldn't do anything that topped that. And you can't hit him unless you know the word. Now, who, who is Mark Atherton to disagree with E.V. Hill? But I am going to take one point, one point of disagreement. Don't tell him, come on, devil, let me have it. Don't tell him, come on, devil, let's do, let's do business right now. No, no. No, don't, don't be that stupid. He got a little carried away there with the moment, okay? <laughs> He's resistant to the word. And only way you fight him is with the word of God. And the only way you battle his lies is with the truth. But you will not distinguish between the truth unless you know what the lies, unless you distinguish the lies unless you know what the truth is. And knowing what the truth is, is don't you wish you get, when you knelt at the altar and got saved, that God would come along and just knock you over the head with a holy baseball bat and all of a sudden you know the truth. It don't happen that way. It's a lifelong process. Why can I quote scripture from you, from memory? Why can I quote Titus 2, 11 through 14 from memory? Because when I was a brand new Christian, part of my devotions was having memory verses every single day to work on. And I have hidden the word away in my heart and it stays there and it comes out 29 years later. If you don't think there's any discipline to being a Christian, you are sadly mistaken. You got to hide his word in your heart. He can't reach down and prompt you at the right moment to pull out that scripture if it's not there to begin with. He's resistant to the truth, but you have to know. He's resistant to his lies, excuse me, but you have to know. You have to know the difference between truth and the difference between lies. And as we come to the table this morning, those of you that are being baptized, why don't you all go on and be dismissed? And
as we come to the table this morning and as our servers are getting ready. So you got to know the truth of what we do here. Because the world will tell you, well, there's, you know, there's a lot of ways to get to heaven. And that's, that's, that's good for you that you believe in Jesus, but, you know, that's your truth. And I have my own truth. But aren't you glad that God loves us so much? He showed us the right way. And we don't have to wonder and scratch our heads and I wonder if I'm on the right way. It's almost like GPS. Before GPS, we were out driving around, we wondered if we were on the right way. But now we got the truth. We got GPS. And we can know. And God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. And no one comes to the Father. No, the world will just go ape when you say that. I'm so thankful that he did. And my only decision is whether I'm going to believe that or not. As you come to the tables this morning, I don't know where you are with your battles with the enemy. Remember now, he doesn't make you do anything. He can lie to you and you can believe his lie, but he doesn't make you do anything. And I don't know where you are this morning and you need to get some more truth in you. That's not going to happen overnight. You start today. Continue tomorrow. Well, you missed, I missed Tuesday. I guess I'll just give it up. I didn't, I didn't, I, get, I give it up because it's not for me. I missed Tuesday. No, forget it and get back on the road on Wednesday. You've got to put in the time. Because, friends, what you sow, you will reap. And that's a positive thing as well as it's a negative thing. And if you sow month after month, year after year, seeds of truth into you, you will reap good things. Good things. I don't know where you are. I don't know if you need to come to this altar this morning and talk to God about this truth business and enemy business and all of that. But in the next few moments here, you worship as God leads you. Our altars are open. Our tables are open for communion. You worship as you see fit.